بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to our Misk Women podcast series Left or Right, The Straight Path, Please My name is Um Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you back to another episode Inshallah there's lots to get through, so inshallah, let's begin with our dua from Imam Haddad. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alamin. Allahumma inni nawaitu ta'alumu wa ta'alim wa tadakura wa tadkir wa nafa' wal intifa' wal ifada wal istifada wal hatha'ala tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulih wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair. ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى All praise is for Allah, the Lord of the worlds. I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance, direct towards good, Seeking thereby the countenance of Allah, His divine pleasure, closeness, and His reward, the most exalted and high. Amen. It's always important that we make that dua or a similar dua to orientate ourselves towards Allah, which means what? That our learning should be for His sake, and inshallah, that our learning should be something that increases us in beneficial knowledge. And particularly if we are studying secular topics, because maybe we would be doing a fiqh class or a class containing essentially religious knowledge and perhaps we forgot our dua and okay, we'd miss the barakah of it and things like that, but it wouldn't really impact on us so much if it was that the content we were studying was religious content. Because we would be seeking knowledge and seeking knowledge is the dhikr of Allah, is the remembrance of Allah and the Prophet ﷺ. So in a way, through the content, we would be orientating ourselves anyway. However, when it comes to seeking and trying to understand secular knowledge, then it's even more important that we make these du'as and that before we go into anything that we ground ourselves properly in the correct way of thinking and approaching knowledge with the right intention, with ikhlas, with sincerity and with siddiq and with truthfulness so that inshallah we remain firm and that we don't get led astray by some of the things that we are studying and as we have taken the hadith before and the ayah which says Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa anna hadha sirati mustaqiman fattabi'uhu wa la tattabi'u subula fatafarraqa bikum an sabilihi This is my path the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is straight so follow it and do not follow the other paths lest they divert you from his path. So we need to make sure that we are correctly orientated, that we have our correct intention before we start to seek knowledge because there is a shaitan on every other path calling us towards it. And if we don't protect ourselves with the proper dua, then shaitan can easily make some impact we seek refuge in Allah from that. Okay, in our last episode we looked at conservatism and the three main takeaways that we have from that 
inshallah, is understanding the principles, the main principles that it was founded on, this right-wing status quo, which is freedom, freedom to pursue wealth and happiness. And we also know that conservatism is about preserving, conserving, maintaining and and the continuity of the institutions, the structures and the values which have gone into making this particular world order which has spread far and wide not just through Europe but through the colonial exploits of European countries and they have taken their systems and values and principles of liberal democracy and of freedom, individual freedom and individualism and capitalism all over the world. And that's the system that we are all in at the moment. Today, inshallah, we are going to look at the left, or rather the basis of the genealogy of leftist thought, which is essentially Marxism. And inshallah, that is an oppositional way of thinking. So we have our right wing, our status quo, and we have the type of thinking in which the main goal is about subverting that status quo, being oppositional, being confrontational and seeking, and this is the key word. The key word for the left is change. Just as perhaps we could say the key word for the right is continuity. So the left wants to undo, deconstruct, bring down, challenge and have removed the very structures that are upholding the right-wing status quo so that in their view there can be a greater form of justice and particularly social justice, a more equitable distribution of wealth and that there can be an equity and an equality not just in people's opportunities, but in the outcomes of what people are seeking, whether that be income, social status, power, or whatever it is in their dunya, in their material world, that they are looking for and thinking that that will bring them happiness and that will bring them the rights and the justice that they feel they didn't have before under the status quo system. So where did all this so-called subversive thinking emerge from? Well, of course, every idea is built on another idea. And there's no such thing as ideas and theories and philosophies just appearing out of the blue on their own and turning up and impacting on people and making an incredible place for themselves in history and influencing millions and millions of people. It doesn't work like that. Every single idea can be traced through a series of other ideas preceding it to a point of origin. And for Western type of thinking on the status quo side, that would go back to the ancient Greeks. And for those on the left, then the seeds of leftist thought really were sown throughout history in any sort of conflict or opposition, but they weren't put into a type of ideological framework until really Karl Marx came along and looked at particularly the work of Hegel, who was a German philosopher before him, and he was able to take those ideas of Hegel and turn them upside down and turn them away from being 
a type of idealism into a materialism. So we will discuss what that means, inshallah. We'll also have a look at a bit of the biography of Karl Marx and then we'll look at the development of his ideas in his lifetime, inshallah, and then how they continued to develop and the extent of the impact of those ideas really needs a lot of time. But basically what we can say is that those ideas have become so far-reaching that they are really dominating at the time that we're living in and they have very much become their own status quo. So now it is that if people are opposing, for example, these very strong concepts of social justice which are around at the moment, which most people would be familiar with, um, then it might then they're silenced and they're not allowed to oppose that. They would be called phobic or they would be called or they would be given labels such as misogynist, for example. Now I'm not defending any of those positions. I'm just saying to you that should somebody come with a view which is opposing the type of social justice that the left is promoting now, then they will instantly be labelled, they will instantly be silenced and they will instantly be vilified for having those views. And this is apparently justice. Okay, So we have to be very clear about the discourse here and what agendas are actually being promoted. So is it that people who are promoting a Marxist-based social justice really about equality or is it more about putting their own agenda across so forcefully that nobody else is in a position to be able to speak against that or confront it or even publicly disagree with it and that people's own thoughts about, mm, well, I'm not quite sure about this or that, that now they have to retreat into their own private realm for fear of being disgraced or humiliated publicly, for losing their job or for whatever. And this really goes against the whole principle of free speech, which is one of the foundational values of Western liberal democratic society. This is really the dynamic between the two sides. Now, as Muslims, we can either look at one or the other and agree or disagree or be somewhere in between them all if we are to take on the worldview that either of those are the way that we see the world. But we don't see the world like that from a traditional Islamic point of view. We have a completely different understanding of sociology. We have a completely different theoretical basis and application of that theory in terms of how we understand and live in the world. So this places us in a unique position because we're able to look at both sides and critique both sides and see the reality of the arguments on both sides without necessarily having to align ourselves with the ideological or philosophical positions of either of those two sides. So this puts us in quite a unique place. And I would say, alhamdulillah, that is a huge rahmah because it can give us clarity and understanding about what's really going on and how we're meant to be here. Okay, so let's get into our content for this episode. Inshallah. So first of all, the biography of Karl Marx. He was born in 1818 in Germany and he came from a secular Jewish background. His father actually left Judaism and became an evangelical Christian. His father was also a very well-to-do lawyer who had a property and uh, vineyards 
And his young son grew up well-educated and went to university. And also Karl Marx's sister married another wealthy businessman who became the founder of the Philips Electronics Company. So you probably have a Philips product in your house, like a toaster or an iron or some type of uh, blender or something. So that goes back to Karl Marx. So you can see that Karl Marx himself was born very middle class, okay? There is absolutely nothing working class about Karl Marx, okay? And the way he was born and grew up. It may be later in life that he had less money, but he was by no means ever not middle class, meaning what? He was never working class because he didn't come from a working class background and he had the privilege of education, which enabled him to become a thinker and a philosopher, which is rarely afforded to working class people who are too busy trying to get food on the table and make ends meet. So basically, you can only be a socialist, really, if you can afford to be one. And he himself, the founder of it, was the proof of that. He had quite uh, an interesting journey through his uh, philosophical works. And he was originally a philosopher before he became an economist or very interested in economics. And he was very heavily influenced by the German philosopher Hegel. And Hegel had an idea that history is where truth is contained. And that when we look at history, what we are really looking at is three specific dynamics. Now, Hegel didn't give these terms. So this terminology came after, but it's the terminology that we use when we discuss Hegel's philosophical theory. And his view was that in any given society, there are three elements constantly at play. The first is that there is something called the thesis, which is the idea, which is the issue at hand. And that whatever issue exists, there will be the antithesis, the opposite of that, which will be a conflict or a confrontation or a disagreement or somehow a challenge to that main idea, the thesis. Then the two of them will interact and there will be conflict and that there will naturally evolve from that conflict a type of change which will produce an improvement and that improvement born of the conflict is called the synthesis. And then the synthesis goes on when there's been a resolution of the issue. The synthesis then goes on to form the next thesis and then the process continues and it's thought that this process continues until the point where there's no more conflict anymore, where everything's been resolved. And then one reaches a form of idealism, as Hegel had put it. And to him, that was the path of truth and freedom, where all conflict could eventually be resolved. And it was through that that the human being attained a form of self-consciousness and a form of if you like, I wouldn't want to use the word purification really, but where the human being attains their, their full concept and practice and manifestation of freedom because now they are free from the issues and the conflicts because everything's been resolved. So for Hegel, this had a more sort of spiritual type of outcome because it was to do with people's consciousness and to do uh, with the people's uh, well-being and it did have a manifestation politically and he saw that the ultimate political outcome would be perfection in the Prussian state. Okay, 
Marx came along as a philosopher in university. He was very influenced by this and particularly the part of the conflict because, as you will know, he was born after the French Revolution in 1789 and he saw the products of that and he saw that people did have a type of power and that people could change and that people could challenge uh, structures and authorities and things that they didn't like and they could bring about change. So he was interested to see how that had actually come into effect and the results of that. And what he saw for himself, though, living at the time he did, which was sort of at the, the peak of the Industrial Revolution, and he'd had these sort of strange ideas, leftist ideas, and he'd been kind of kicked out or exiled from Germany. He'd gone to France, he'd gone to Belgium, and he ended up in England, in London. And there he saw the real product of industrialization and the oppression that industrialization had brought to working class people. There was tremendous poverty and ill health and people selling the only thing that they had, which was their labor, to wealthy people who were the owners of the production or owners of the means of production and selling what they had for a scrap in return, which would be giving long hours for very low wages and that somehow they had to be content with that. So he saw in that relationship and in that dynamic that there was the thesis and the antithesis. So there was the issue and the conflict and that there had to be some type of challenge to that and resolution of that in order to bring about a better outcome for working class people, which would be the synthesis, and that this process needed to continue and go on until it reached its ultimate outcome, which would be utopia. So that's where this word of the, or this concept of the communist utopia comes in, where it would be the ultimate resolution of material difference and where everybody would end up being materially the same. Why? Because there would be no more exploitation between the classes. And the classes here were economic classes. And so for Marx, that's what it was all about. It was about reaching a utopia where there was a form of economic equality between all people. Now, that didn't happen, of course. And what Marx did eventually see was in 1848 in France that there was another revolution that had gone on and the somewhat moderate king, uh, King Louis, had been deposed and uh, had run away and that the working class people had again come forward and decided that they wanted to bring down this monarchy and bring in some better form of government for themselves. Now, Marx happened to be in London at the time, but of course he was witnessing this from afar. I think he even went there at one point to see what was going on. And so he had predicted in 1848 in his own book, The Communist Manifesto, that the middle classes would bring about a type of revolution. Now, for him, it was all about class, as we've said, and economics. So he turned Hegel's dialectical idealism, as it was called, into dialectical materialism. So it was no longer about the consciousness of the individual, it became about the material conditions of the individual. So Marx had sort of predicted that there was going to be some change and revolution and then it actually happened, not exactly as he'd thought, but there had been a political revolution happen in France. And so he was very pleased by this, of course, because he thought now this was going to be the big change. And 
It wasn't. However, what pleased him at the time was that he saw how all the people would come together to oppose the status quo, to oppose the structure and the forces that had been oppressing them. And he saw middle-class people with working-class people, with peasants, with everybody come together and oppose the monarchy and bring it down. However, that was in February of that year. And then only a few months later, he saw the opposite of that. So that early part he called the beautiful revolution and then in June that year he called it the ugly revolution because what had happened was now that the goal of everybody to bring down the monarchy had happened, then people started to splinter and look towards their own particular interests. So what the working class really want is land and what the middle classes really want is ownership and property and to have more money than the working class because middle class people really don't want everyone to be middle class because they need working class people to service them and they need working class people to rent their homes so that they can make money off their property and they need working class people to work for them and to do the jobs that they don't want to do. So while they can go off and be philosophers and they can go off and have these uh, nice luxury lifestyles, they need a whole class of people there to facilitate that for them. So when the working class people come out and the peasants of them demand land and the workers of them demand stable jobs and decent wages, then the middle class who are after power and status and wealth are reluctant to hand over anything that they've got to the others. And in June of that year, the middle class actually brought the army in and turned guns onto the working class people to stop them from moving forward and to actually claiming what they had wanted through that revolution. So that was very disillusioning for Marx. And he began at that point to turn away from his political theory and he turned more to his economic theory and he became... I guess, a, an, a, an economic scientist more than a political scientist for the rest of his uh, intellectual life. Anyway, so what is it that he really brought? Well, he brought this concept of the superstructure. And there are a couple of key words here that you need to know and understand because these come into every single type of social, cultural, political and economic discussion from then on until the place where we're at now. These concepts and the meanings and what's attributed to them have changed significantly sometimes or not. It depends on the what's happened throughout history since then. And it's based on really the initial concept of the infrastructure and then the superstructure is built on from that. So Marx's concept of the infrastructure was the economic and political system which kept everything in check. And then beyond that is the superstructure, which is then the cultural, social and ideological, religious and other aspects of society that were used to maintain that dominant political and economic infrastructure. And a very important point for us here is to know that Marx was always about reading between the lines, if you like, or reading into things, the reality. So this is where the concept of agendas really comes from and trying to look below the surface to see what's really going on here. And this is one of the core aspects of 
critique because we don't just look at the surface of something when we critique it, we actually go right into it, into the nuts and bolts of what's going on and try to, with our theoretical perspective, try and understand the dynamics that exist between any given elements in any given situation, sociological, familial, political, economic or whatever they may be. So the superstructure, which is underpinned by the infrastructure, revolves around this concept of this two-tiered structure of society, where you have like a two-tiered dynamic, where you have a very small and wealthy ruling class called the bourgeoisie, and they own the means of production and they're exploitative in their use of the much larger, lower tier, which is the working class or the proletariat. So this proletariat needs to wake up and realize that they are being exploited by the middle class of the owning class. And this is what Marx wanted to happen when he wanted this revolution to occur. And he always wanted that. It's just that he realized that it wasn't really going to happen on a political level, that it had to happen on an economic level. And he said that when the working class wakes up from their alienation, this is one of his words, where the working class person doesn't realize that what they're actually doing in selling their labor, which is all they have as a commodity, that what they're doing is they're dehumanizing themselves and they're alienating themselves. So he saw that a person's intrinsic value and self-esteem came from being invested and proud in their work and the things that they produced. So if you were a carpenter, for example, your pride would come in what you could do with wood and the types of products that you could make. And you owned those products until you actually sold them. Or if you were a farmer, then what you could sow in your fields and produce in terms of crops and fruits or whatever it was that you were doing. But when a person goes into a factory that they don't own and their whole working life is about producing commodities that they have no personal investment in, that they don't own and that will only be sold off at a profit for somebody else, then this is the ultimate in alienation and that this dehumanizes the human being. And so that that can only change and the working class can only realize that state that they're in, which is what he also called the false consciousness, where they think that what they're doing is fine and they're just happy to have their meager wage at the end of the week and they live in poverty and they have to be woken up from that state of false consciousness, realize their alienation and then rise up and oppose the ruling classes, have a revolution and that will bring about the changes that they want and that will cause betterment for them and this process has to continue until, as we said, it results in this form of utopia of equality. In 1847, Marx wrote about the class struggle and he said that this class struggle will change the world. And this is a very, very key concept that comes from Marxism and we can see it literally today where there's this notion that when the working class is freed and liberated from their alienation and when they're woken up from their false consciousness and they realize they're being exploited and oppressed and they set about doing something about that, that that process in itself will actually change the whole system. And that the class struggle and that the victory 
for those working class people will be a victory that changes the structure and changes the system and changes the whole world. And we've seen that play out uh, since then in different movements, in civil rights movements, where there's the same notion that when all people are given their civil rights, the whole system will change. And we've seen it uh, more recently in queer theory, where people who identify with non-heterosexual types of sexuality or with non-binary gender that if they're liberated and if they're given their rights, then all of society will be liberated. So there's an example there of how this Marxist concept of class struggle will change the world has actually come through and manifested in different types of struggles as a notion or a concept, but until this point, it's never actually been successful like that. So for Marx, his concept was that the whole capitalist system will collapse if the working class is liberated. And despite the amount of, for example, trade unions and um, instituting better labour practices and labour laws and anything that has gone into trying to make the conditions better for working class people, so far whatever has happened in history has not yet changed the capitalist system. It hasn't changed the very structures upon which local and global economies are built and it hasn't had the impact that Marx had envisaged. If we move on a little bit further to the end of the 19th century, there came an Italian Marxist philosopher called Antonio Gramsci. And I think he died in about 1934. And his last 11 years were apparently in Mussolini's prison. Mussolini, who was the fascist dictator of Italy at the time. However, Gramsci expanded on Marx's ideas because Marx obviously was all about politics, first of all, and then economics. So Marxism has really informed a huge portion of Western thought and it was developed in many different strands and one of the key developers which took it out just from the political and economic and put it more into the social and cultural was this philosopher called Gramsci and he came up with this idea or this concept of hegemony and hegemony is when you have a ruling concept, a ruling ideology, which is maintained by the political and economic system by those in power, but which is actually the ideology of the dominant culture in any given society. So he said that this ideology, this hegemony is perpetuated by those who control, for example, education, particularly, that was a big field for him, and those who control the production of uh, culture through generations. So cultural values, cultural norms, societal structures, the way that people are living as communities and in the broader society, so family, community and society, how the dominant ideas are continually being perpetuated, that that is what the hegemony is. So those types of ideas that exist in people's daily life can't necessarily be developed and perpetuated by a political or economic structure alone. The political and economic are bolstered by what goes on in the cultural and social and particularly the educational experiences and indoctrination and this is what Gramsci focused on. So by bringing it in now into the cultural and social sphere, 
then these Marx's concepts, which is pretty simple really, it's where the lower and bigger structure needs to realise where they are in terms of the smaller and higher level and wake up and revolt against that and change and subvert the system, the structure that is oppressing them. So it's quite simple like that. But once Gramsci had moved into the cultural and social, it began to change much more significantly and become more complex. And it's really morphed into all sorts of movements and ideas. And at the moment can be quite difficult to see where it is because this hegemony has become not just a concept or an ideological thought that it was for Gramsci, but it's actually become very much the shape of the world that we're living in at the moment. So when we talk about the genealogy of the left and when we've looked now at Hegel and his form of dialectical idealism that Marx turned into dialectical materialism, okay, so we've gone through that, and then we look at this revolutionary process which is meant to occur to, to set that change off, and then we look at how other theorists, philosophers, sociologists have come along since then. And as Gramsci opened the door now to being able to take this Marxist concept or this Marxist paradigm and apply it to other aspects of society, social, social, cultural, familial, educational, for example, then we have people come and look at, for example, society from a structuralist point of view and a functionalist point of view. Okay, so now we're looking at the development, a broader development of Western philosophical theory. And not all of them are Marxist-based, but a lot of them are. And then we need to move on to see how these social and cultural ideas about structure and ideology have gone on to impact in culture and in the Western concept they call high culture, which is literature, art and architecture. And so it's after that that we get a birth of the school of modernism in those three fields. So we get a break and a change and quite a distinct movement away from traditional forms of literature, art and architecture and this concept of modernism is born. So I'm just going to list these different categories because inshallah what we want to do through this series of podcasts is to go into these in more detail so that everybody who's listening has a much clearer idea of the main thoughts and streams of thought and the development of ideas in our society so that inshallah we have a proper knowledge of the world that we live in and at the same time, we're able to look at it, as I said at the start, and see it from a proper Islamic point of view, which inshallah will also be developing more, so that inshallah we're living here in the most informed way that we can be, and that we are able to apply our knowledge that we get from our texts and from our sources and from our tradition and from following the Prophet in the best possible way while we navigate through this whole minefield of ideas and ideology and theories and practices and this constant change that we're subjected to uh, in the modern world. 
So Marxism, as we said, is based on subversion and it's based on change, okay? They're really the key words. And that doesn't just happen in the political and economic sphere. It happens in the social, cultural and educational sphere. And it also happens in the arts, arts, literature and architecture. So modernism was born and it affected those areas quite significantly or rather modernism came out of these concepts of change and subversion and that was really brought about through changes in the tastes of people which inshallah we will go into then we have something called the frankfurt school of critical theory now critical is also one of the most important words that you need to know because if critical is attached to anything then you know immediately it's coming from a critique position it's coming from a Marxist-based position of looking at the status quo in whatever field it is and bringing it down and deconstructing it. So if we look at, for example, critical pedagogy, so in education, if you've ever studied education uh, formally, then you'll know about pedagogy, which is the methods of teaching, learning, imparting knowledge, and that there is a particular way that that's always been done. And there are particular power dynamics which are understood to exist in the teacher and student relationship, for example, in curriculum design, in the whole design and setup of schools and educational institutions. So critical pedagogy will be a critique of that and a way of trying to democratise or to bring down those traditional power relationships so that there is more equality between student and teacher, that there is more equality and inclusivity in terms of the curriculum, etc. So there's an example of the word critical being used. We also have post-structuralist studies and then post-modernism. So we had modernism as a movement, an intellectual and an artistic and creative movement, and then we get post-modernism, which comes later. And then we get cultural Marxism, which is really a major extension on Gramsci's original ideas. And cultural Marxism has got to do with looking at this or imposing this superstructure onto culture. Again, we'll go into that inshallah. And postmodernism and cultural Marxism got together in a most unholy alliance and gave birth to something called critical theory. So we mentioned critical theory with the Frankfurt School, but now critical theory has risen up to be its own complete set of ideological values and principles and philosophy. And critical theory involves five aspects, which is race, ethnicity, sexuality, class and gender. So that's where your feminism comes in. And critical theory has developed areas of study such as post-colonialism and orientalism came from that as well, but slightly different for us the orientalism. Edward Said, who was a Palestinian, uh, Christian Palestinian um, intellectual, and his work, although it does come from a Marxist type of base, also goes beyond that as well so it doesn't 
So what the Marxist theory did for him there was open a particular way of looking at how the West has constructed its ideas of the Orient, which of course includes Muslims, but he didn't let that restrict him. He just used it like as a doorway and went on to develop um, very, very profound and impactful and very, very unique ways of understanding this relationship between Europe and the Orient, everybody else, and what happened there, and also race, which of course is a huge issue and continues to be. So it probably sounds like I'm a little bit skeptical or critical of some of these concepts and ideas, and I acknowledge 100% the issues that are there. Are black people facing issues because of their colour of their skin that white people do not face? 100%, absolutely, there's no doubt about that. And these issues are not being denied. My point is, how do we deal with these issues from an Islamic point of view? Okay, do we take the current view of how race is being treated and how people are theorising and acting upon racial oppression, do we just follow that, like uncritically? Do we just go with that? Or do we stop and say, hang on a minute, we have Iman, we have the Sunnah, we have the Quran. What did the Prophet, والسلام, what did he say about that? And how are we meant to deal with that from that point of view? So I don't deny any of these issues at all. In fact, I 100% acknowledge these issues, but how do we understand and deal with that? As for feminism, were Western women oppressed? 100% they lived in a horrible society. They had absolutely no rights. They were really, really um, at the bottom rung of society. And should they have fought and tried to get some rights for themselves? Well, yeah, I mean, sure, we, but we don't have that problem in Islam. Muslim women were given their rights, full rights, 1,400 years ago. And Western women, particularly at the end of the 19th century, had absolutely nothing like that. And so my point is that Western feminism is a Western issue. It's not a Muslim issue. Does that mean that there are not major transgressions and major oppressions of women in Muslim societies? Of course there are major oppressions and transgressions of women in Muslim societies. But do we approach that from a Western feminist perspective or do we have our own way of dealing with that? And just because Western women have gone through these processes to try and scrape up for themselves some basic acknowledgement, number one, that they're human because there was a very dominant view that women didn't even have souls or that women were some type of devil or that women weren't even human. So the point is that the struggles that went on for Western women to get some of the rights that they should have had as human beings, it's not Auslander, it's not the basis of our being women in the world as Muslim women. So we need to look at what the issues are, where the ideas for the struggle of those issues has come in, and are they our issues or not? And a lot of them are not our issues, but because we're living in societies where these are the main issues, of course we're directly impacted by these issues, and that's why we have to know what they are, what they're not, and where are we in relation to all of that.
Also, we have critical race theory, which comes from this, and that's where the whole concept of white privilege comes in. So white privilege is actually a part of critical theory. And there's also queer theory and uh, gender theories and the concept of gender fluidity and that there's no such thing as binary gender identity. So you're not really male or female regardless of your biology and just because you have a certain physiological aspect to yourself doesn't mean that that actually makes you male or female nor does that mean that you necessarily have to identify as to what your biology would traditionally have uh, indicated towards and now in radical queer theory or radical gender theory there isn't even a need to acknowledge that one's physiological formation is indeed a form of reality. So this is a very, very extreme way of looking at the world and the roots of that come from this concept of subversion and change and opposition which come out of the Marxist theory of bringing down the superstructure and engaging in the type of change that the thesis, antithesis and synthesis model would have us engaged in should that be applied. So these later aspects would go into the field of identity politics, which is a term that most people would probably be familiar with. Anyway, so we'll finish there, inshallah. And just on this note that what actually happened as a result of Karl Marx's and Frederick Engels' ideas being taken up by particular governments in the world was, I think, not really their fault in the sense that they didn't envisage that that would happen. So there were several extremely dictatorial governments that emerged as socialist governments, so-called communist governments. Most of them have failed. There's one or two still around at the moment. So with the emergence of these dictatorial socialist and communist governments, we got quite a subversion even of what Marx and Engels had hoped to subvert at the very beginning. And they morphed into these monsters of oppression and dehumanizing people. And it said that, now I don't know how accurate this is, but this is the, the general number which goes around that in 100 years of socialist slash communist government, there were 100 million deaths. And so anybody can look into the history of Stalin's Soviet Union or Pol Pot in Cambodia or the Viet Cong in Vietnam or even go into Cuba, uh, North Korea and uh, Venezuela and a lot of these other countries that tried to apply, uh, Libya is another one by the way, um, that tried to apply a socialist type of political and economic framework into their countries and of course in order for people to be liberated then they needed to follow a certain system and a certain pattern and people were not allowed to go beyond that. And this, of course, produced an incredible amount of exploitation and also an incredible amount of oppression because a very strong government was required to make sure that all the production was taken out of the hands of private companies and people and put into this communal type of pool so that everybody worked with no education, 
with no religion and they just became workers for the economic equality, for the equal distribution of wealth amongst the whole population. And of course this is very unrealistic and in order to control people to make sure that that happened, they needed to be extremely heavy-handed governments and that resulted in a lot of death and a lot of destruction and of course those countries didn't survive and they, they all turned back to a capitalist form of economics. So that's sort of the upshot of Marxism. Economically it failed but in terms of culture and society one might say it's been extremely successful because now it's forming the basis of the dominant understanding of the world at the moment. It completely, I would say, 90% at least dominates academia um, and this concept, this core concept of subversion, uh, people feel it's their right to stand up, to have their say, to say what they want, act as they want, do what they want and pursue whatever path they want in the world and where those ideas come from is a strange mix between these traditional values of the right about freedom and now doing so in opposition to the status quo, which of course is born from the left. So that's where it can get a little bit complex, but inshallah we are going to take our time and go through these other concepts and ideas and practices that I've just listed here, um, starting with modernism. But before we go into anything any further, now inshallah we've established a bit of an idea of the left and the right. And now we need to go back and look very, very closely at our own Islamic scholarly and spiritual tradition and to see what types of sociological theories, what types of philosophies and what types of ideas have been developed there over the last 1400 years, which we need to go back and own again for ourselves and understand and base our understanding and paradigm on that and not fall into this leftist or right-wing type of thinking that dominates in the world today. Inshallah, that will do for now. If you have any questions or anything at all, of course, please let us know through our Facebook group, Misk Women Halakha, or through Instagram, or if you wanted to email me on miskwomen at gmail.com. So inshallah, I hope that this will generate some discussion and inshallah we will move on and take it from here. Jazakum la khair, barakallahu fikum. Inshallah, may Allah put us on the straight path, guide us and make us people who are pleasing to him. Inshallah. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik.